This episode is brought to you by the Podcast Services Division at Life's Tough Media. Having your own podcast allows you to creatively reach all types of audiences, from clients to prospects, to your most loyal membership base. And by utilizing studio affiliates located around the world, coupled with quality remote recording capabilities, Life's Tough Media makes having a corporate podcast easier than ever before. Contact us for a no-obligation consultation at info at or visit lifestuff.com to learn more. Welcome to Life's Tough. You can be tougher. I'm Dustin Planel, your host. Thank you for joining us for this very special episode as we get to learn and talk to some of the innovators and visionaries that are looking to improve the quality of our own lives. Our guest today is David Vaskovich. David joined Microsoft in 1986 and held various senior executive positions during his 23-year tenure, most recently serving as chief technical officer from 2001 to 2009. David today, however, has a company called MyLeo. Let's welcome him on today. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad, glad to be here. You know, David, you have had quite the career. I mean, you were the chief technology officer at Microsoft, but how did this journey begin for you? How did you reach the spot where an organization like that trusted you for such a vital role? Well, it really started a long time ago. I started programming in 1966. Of course, nobody even knew what a computer was in 1966. Uh, although there were science fiction books that talked about computers from before that, Robert Heinlein, uh, Asimov, Bradbury. But, you know, for the most part, I was programming kind of all on my own. And then I wrote one of the first three email systems in the world in 1971. Uh, and not long after that, I had a project at the University of Toronto. I actually had people working for me, which probably wasn't good for me or for them, but it worked out okay in the end. And we had 2,500 users across three campuses on these typewriter terminals. They didn't even have screens. And so I, you know, I got involved with software that to a greater or lesser extent changed people's lives from a very early time. Uh, then I did my own startup in the late 70s uh, and joined 3Com, where I worked with the guy who invented local area networking, Bob Metcalf. And so by the time I got to Microsoft in 1986, I already had done quite a bit. And uh, yeah. But who taught you how to do all this? Like, was there like the, the book for dummies? Like, was there some sort of guide or Bible for you to learn how to programming? Who taught you? No, I taught myself. You know, I, I was actually born in Israel, and so my mother tongue is Hebrew, and my father's from Russia, although he grew up in Israel. My mother's from Germany, so they all spoke five languages, and we eventually moved to Toronto, but it never occurred to them that they should speak English at home. So when I went to school, like this hmm. is, you know, kindergarten, um, my perspective was that the kids hadn't learned how to talk. And their perspective was that there was something wrong with me. So I got there and I learned to speak English. And then, of course, in grade one, I couldn't read because I couldn't speak. And then, But then I learned how to read very quickly. 
And then I was just different than all the rest of the kids. So when they were playing, you know, baseball or football or hockey, I was going, so there weren't a lot of libraries, but there was a bookmobile. It was kind of a Winnebago full of books. I'd go up to the bookmobile and they normally had a limit on how many books you could take up, but the librarian said it didn't apply to me. So every week I would go up there and get 10 to 15 books. And then the next week I would have read them all and I'd get another 10 to 15 books. And so I just got used to kind of learning things on my own. And I kept reading about computers in science fiction books. I mean, you know, like uh, if you think about 2001, A Space Odyssey with HAL, the intelligent computer, which still doesn't really exist, there were lots of science fiction books describing that. So I decided I wanted to learn about computers. And I found uh, some books on Fortran and taught myself Fortran. And wow. okay, one, one thing that was really fortunate for me. I mean, that's was, pretty wild. I mean, you look at where your parents came from. Now, what was your, like, what was your dad like? What was your mom like? What did your dad do? What, what sort of career? Well, this is interesting. They were both engineers. Okay. So the fact that my dad was an engineer isn't unusual, but the fact that my mother became a civil engineer in the fifties, that's really unusual. For a lady in the fifties to become a civil engineer. Absolutely. That's yes. remarkable. So that's why you're so smart. Your, your parents, they, they pressed you for education. Well, I don't know if they pressed me. I was just, you know, I, I've always been interested in things. The two things I really loved doing when I was a kid were reading. And, you know, I read very widely. And I also liked taking things apart to see how they worked. So the thing that was really lucky for me, this was uh, an extreme stroke of good fortune. So, uh, in Toronto, the high school that I ended up going to, so I, I did very poorly in school. and My mother didn't quite know what to do with me. So they sent me to a different high school than I would have gone to normally. And this high school had a special program for kids who weren't going to go to university. It was basically training for, it was training for trades. So they had like, a machine shop and they had an electrical engineering shop and they had, you learned how to do drafting. So I still know how to draw plans for houses and stuff like that. So normally this program ended one year short of when the high school ended, but every year they would have 30 students who went into this program, even though they were expected to go to university. So I was one of those 30 students. So when they built this high school, which was very unusual, they also got funding. I still don't know where they got it from to put a computer into the high school. So this computer had a room with glass walls and a raised floor and a mainframe computer in it. And they didn't know what to do with the computer. Like for a while, they had an operator who would come in every day and then he wasn't doing anything. So he only came in once a week. And then there weren't really very many classes around it. So I started spending all my time in the computer room. Like when I got this book, I was able to go into the computer room. They had a key punch. And like most of your listeners aren't even going to know what a key punch is. This is yeah, the I mean, days. What, what, what is that exactly? Is that like something you go play with like a, uh, a gaming store? Like what is that? So do you know what punched cards are? Uh, you know what I do, but most of my listeners won't know. So, so tell us, what, old, what is in that? The, in the old days, uh, computers didn't have... Um, they wouldn't even know what a terminal is. The way that you talk to a computer is you had these cardboard cards that you would punch holes out of. 
and then a card reader, which was a large physical device that could read hundreds of cards per minute. And that's how you uh, program the computer. And then the output appeared on a printer. So, and only one person at a time could use the computer. Now, Even how big were these computers? Like, were these computers, what size were they? So this was a computer that would fill up a good-sized room. I mean, you know, this is, they're called mainframes. A computer would cost over a million dollars. Uh, I mean, you know, that, the early days of computers, that's how computers were. The idea that you could talk to a computer from a distance was a new idea. Incredible. So, so, I, so now take us, you, you now get this job working for this company, Microsoft. You were employee number, what was it again? 901. All right, so you're employee 901. Tell me about the first time you met Bill Gates. What was that like? So I met Bill, obviously, before I joined Microsoft. And uh, so to put this in perspective, so when I, was in, when I was still in Toronto, I wrote a master's thesis. And the master's thesis was on text editors. Today, you'd probably call them word processors. And, um, and so I had this idea that one day everybody who worked on words would do it on a screen. And I would say that and people would turn off their ears, like they would stop listening. So it didn't matter what I said after that because they weren't listening to me anymore. And then when I met Bill, we were talking about this and he had the same vision. So I thought, okay, I wanna be at this company. So, um, and you have to put in perspective that at, in 1986, there was no internet. And so software was a physical product. You'd go to a computer store and you'd, you, there was no Amazon, so you couldn't really order it easily online. And you'd buy a box and the box would have disks in it and you would install the software from the disks on your computer and there would be a manual, a printed manual, you know, in, in the box. And so half of Microsoft's employees were manufacturing employees that made the boxes or they didn't make the boxes. They got the boxes from somewhere else and put stuff into them. So then Bill, I mean, in terms of his style, was it work all day and night? Were you, were you getting messages all hours of the day? Were you sleeping there day and night? Like, what was it like in the early days? Well, that's how it was. I didn't happen to sleep there, but there was one famous early employee who had the windows on his office blacked out so that when he was sleeping, nobody could tell when he had a mattress <laughs> in the office. But, you know, like the parking lot would be full all the time. That's how you could really tell. And uh, it was very intense. But to now get the job as being the chief technology officer. No, I wasn't. I only became the chief technology officer much later. When I joined, my first job was actually in marketing, which is kind of strange because I'm a technical kind of guy, but my first job was helping make Windows and what became Office successful. So Incredible. that, you know, that took Microsoft from 200 million to a billion. Wow. And then my next wow. job was creating Microsoft consulting services where there's now thousands of consultants all over the world. And then my next job is I built the enterprise business from the ground up. And then after that, I created the small business division. So I like to create businesses basically. And then I went to work for Bill directly as chief technical officer. And I did that for about eight years. And I was at the company for 25 years altogether. And so then leaving there now, I'm sure you had heard lots of ideas and you now had your own, you, you knew how to solve problems. And now there was one new problem that you wanted to solve. So tell us about the problem you were looking to solve when you left Microsoft. So actually 
this was a problem that I became interested in a long time before that. So, uh, so I have this company called Mylio, and Mylio is a product you can find at www.mylio.com, and it's basically for organizing a lifetime of memories. So to put this in perspective, our the mission statement is changing the way the world remembers. And one of the problems that I had become interested in actually in the 70s was human memory. Like, how is it that, let's say you and I hear a song and neither of us remember what the song is. It sort of bothers you, right? And then you wake up in the middle of the night and you suddenly know what that song is. How does that work? Or how is it that we're you know, we're able to have memories to go back to when we were born. I mean, there's just, you know, there's a lot of interesting and complicated things about how human, how the human brain works and how memories work. So, okay, now, when I joined Microsoft, uh, there were, so people, when people, for instance, did, did word processing, in those days, it was WordStar or, um, Multimate or WordPerfect or even Microsoft Word were not graphical. They were like you'd type of commands on a keyboard and you'd see text on the screen. And so Windows and the Mac, at first, computers weren't fast enough to make graphical applications really work. Like this was a big challenge. And one of the reasons that Microsoft really took off is around 1990, computers became fast enough and Windows became good enough. So now let's fast forward to 1996. You know, Microsoft's now a very big company. Um, I'm getting, I've been running the enterprise group. I have 8,000 people working for me and I'm kind of ready to stop doing that because I don't like running a big organization even though it works well. And one of the things I'm thinking about is like if somebody were to buy a high-end personal computer, why would they need a high-end personal computer? And it was no longer true that they needed it just to run Word or Excel. I mean, even a relatively inexpensive computer by then could run Word and Excel. And, okay, games, but there aren't enough gamers. Okay, programming, well, there aren't enough developers either. And then it came to me, digital photography. Now, in 1996, I would give speeches there'd be thousands of people in the room and I would say digital photography. And that would be like words on a screen. People would turn their ears off. Cause like they all knew there's digital. That's like a spreadsheet or a word processor, which I only use some of the time. And then there's photography, which is film and cameras, 24 or 36 pictures at a time. The average person at that time would take 5,000 pictures over the course of a lifetime. So contrast that with today when a soccer mom goes to a birthday party with her camera and takes 12, her phone, and takes 1,200 pictures right there at that one event. Like I was reading about this product that produces books from your camera roll or your social media. And uh, there was this reviewer talking about how she'd fallen in love with this product as she was producing books for every year of her life, going back a few years. And so she was producing a book for 2017. That's like, you know, a few years ago. This is a very recent review. And she said that she went through 64,000 pictures on her camera roll for that mm. one year. So that's Just like one year now versus and nobody could imagine that in those days. So I started talking about digital photography and actually while I was CTO, 
I had a small group building, um, you could think of it as the predecessor to Milio. So if you think about how digital photography took off, it was there in the 90s, but nobody used digital cameras. And then in the zeros, such a strange name, that decade from 2000 to 2010, digital cameras started to take off, but mostly for professionals and advanced amateurs. Very expensive, complicated, hard to use. And the thing that really changed that was the iPhone. I remember getting into arguments with Steve Ballmer because I would say one day every phone would have a camera. And he said to me, and one day everybody will use a Swiss Army knife. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, Swiss Army knives have all kinds of things built into them and nobody uses them. Why would you attach a phone to a, ca a camera to a phone? But the fact is that today, lots of people carry their phone around all the time and they may or may not make a phone call every day, but they probably take pictures every day. Absolutely. So, so what happened was around 2010, digital photography became really mainstream. And that's right around when I left Microsoft. And, you know, so the thing that I realized is people were going to have at least tens of thousands of pictures, maybe hundreds of thousands of pictures. Okay, now here's the other interesting thing. Fact. People run into burning houses to rescue photographs. Literally, they really do. In fact, there was a book written about it where they took pictures of the people and what they rescued. In fact, my mother in Germany ran into a burning building to rescue a photo albums because she knew that if those photographs disappeared, they represented memories that she would never get back. I mean, they'd sort of be there and they sort of wouldn't be. So how do you organize all those pictures? How do you access them when you really need them? You know, how do you represent them in a way that's meaningful to you. So that's a problem that I wanted to solve. So now how did you get it out of your head? You know, so you knew the problem. And I think that most people that they'll have an idea in their life at some point in their life, and they know they can fix something, make it better, improve it, but they don't know how to start the process. So give some advice as we now close this out to those out there that have this idea, maybe sitting on the shelf, collecting dust in their head. How do they get it out? How do they execute it, David? You know, I don't have an exact description for that. The, the thing about me is that I tend to live in the future. So I'm always imagining things that don't yet exist. And then sometimes they come to exist and sometimes they don't. You really have to try to, you know, I believe in a way that the abstract is the enemy of the concrete. You have to figure out a way, okay, I have this problem. People have this problem. What can I do to solve it? So in my case, I started to think about uh, how many ways would you want to look at all your pictures. So for example, you might have a map. So my Leo has a map and it shows me all the places I've been and the pictures I've taken there. And when people see that, that's always like, if they haven't seen that before, wow, I never thought of that. That's amazing. Uh, my Leo also has, so one of the more interesting things we have is a life calendar, which no other photo product that I know of has. So if you're in the life calendar, you can look at uh, okay, this is July. I could look at July of last year and see all the days I took pictures. That's not that interesting. Everybody does that. I could look at 2016, and then I'll see 12 months, and I'll see the key events for each month. So we show events, which nobody else does. Uh, but the really interesting one is I can pop up a level into decades view. So why would I have decades view? So I'm trying to explain how do you get to a product? You come up with these ideas and then after a while they start to seem compelling. 
So I want all my pictures on my phone, on my computer, on my tablet, even if I don't have connectivity. Like, you know, I was uh, in Los Angeles last week and because um, we wanted to go to Disneyland Universal Studios and it turned out that at the Four Seasons in Los Angeles, the internet is terrible. So if I was dependent on the internet to pull down all my pictures, I couldn't. But because with Mylio, all my pictures are on all my devices, I still had access to them all the time. So these hmm. are all problems that I it's, wanted to it's solve. solve. Yeah, it sounds like it's solving problems. So how do we then learn more about Mylio? www.myleo.com. Simple enough. On the site, there's a lot of explanation. There's also a blog with interesting stories. It's a great starting point. We're looking forward to checking it out. Thanks again for sharing your story on the Lifestyle Podcast. What a journey David has been on from being the chief technical officer at Microsoft to now creating a company to help protect something so precious, something that you and I, well, most of us can't live without. And those are the pictures, the moments that we've captured along our own journey. Carl Lagerfeld said, what I like about photographs is that they capture a moment that's gone forever, impossible to reproduce. Life's tough. My Leo, my Leo's tougher. Take care, everybody. See you next time.